You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Dylan Horrocks. Uh, Dylan was on the show. I was trying to remember how long ago, and of course I could have looked, and I didn't. Um, but it was many years ago. Um, you didn't really have a book to promote, but I really wanted to talk to you. And so we chatted about Hicksville and uh, no longer working in mainstream comics. Um, I think it was probably about a year or so after you'd left them, or maybe a couple of years. I can't remember. Yeah, it was a while ago, and it's um, it was during the long, the long kind of drought when I had nothing to do out for a while. <laughs> and and the funny thing is about that interview. Um, thinking back, is we had we had a lot of discussions about um, that kind of recovery from mainstream and just the kind of the harsh, violent realities of the work you were creating in or non-realities, the harsh violence of it and not being real. Um, I don't know which statement made more sense. Uh, but comes nicely to what we're talking about now. And I think you just done a little bit with Magic. Sam's able to Magic Pen at that point, but not a lot. Um, and so, I don't know, maybe the kind of dovetail of further introspection of where you've come from that point or how you've kind of resolved since that point? Yeah, maybe we should tell people to go back and listen to the older <laughs> interview first. <laughs> well, <laughs> but um, yeah, I was working on Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen when I spoke to you last time. Um, I don't know what stage I was at with it, but I, I think I had a clear vision of what it was about. Uh, because the story started with me uh, trying to get my head around what had happened to me as a writer and cartoonist when I was working for DC. I kind of lost, I lost my faith in stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I started to feel as though stories were no longer these wonderful, glorious, expansive escapes for me, and they were increasingly um, troubling places that I would go into and I didn't I didn't trust them I thought they would take me into dark places <laughs> you weren't um, really yeah. able to um, because some people talk about like they were doing their creative work their personal work and their kind of you know work for money stuff and and for you that differentiation was kind of hard to hold on to or hard to to do yeah, I have a lot of respect for writers who can go into commercial writing situations like that and just do it, you know. I, either they can separate that work out and not really care so much about it, or or in the case of someone like Ed Brubaker or um, Alan Moore, you know, they they have a vision and they pursue that vision relentlessly and even though it's commercial work, they're prepared to meet the requirements of the commercial work, but at the same time stay true to their vision. I think when I was writing for DC, part of the problem was I didn't have a clear vision initially. Um, at least when I was writing, I kind of did with, with this, the fantasy series I wrote for Vertigo, which was Hunter the Age of Magic. I did start out with a clear vision for that, but by the time I was writing Batgirl, for the DC universe, I didn't really go into it 
with a clear sense of what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. The problem partly was that I just have never been that interested in superheroes. Um, and so all those people who, you know, they, their lifelong dream is to write Batman comics, I, that was not my lifelong dream. So I hadn't really thought about it all that much. Um, I hadn't worked out, this is how I would do it if I ever had the chance, you know. And so for the first little while I was really um, uh, sort of going backwards and forwards, trying out different approaches and not quite feeling that any of them were working. And also I was much more subject to the, the pressure of feeling I had to do things a certain way. Um, you know, I, I had an impression of what superhero readers and also the editors would be wanting. Mm-hmm. And I think I let that guide me far more than I should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I <clears throat> long story short, I, I kind of was at sea a bit while I was writing them. But increasingly, I also started to feel that um, <clears throat> the stories I was writing, they weren't really my kind of story. Um, and that there was, they were they were taking place in an imaginary world, which increasingly felt uh, like a hostile place to me. There was one phrase you said before that really stuck with me. Was talking about being in a room full of men talking about killing a teenage girl. Yeah, this was the de- this is the the death of spoiler, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, a character in the. Um, Batman universe, and it and and I think it kind of, I don't know. It it sticks out to me, and it instills something like uh, I think of it. I know Brian and I talk about it a lot, as far as like such like an emotional disconnect uh, in that work for folks, where it's just you're kind of feeding into a machine, and whatever the machine requires to sustain itself. And sometimes it really needs horrible things, horrible actions, um, horrible process, maybe. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the central thing to remember when you're looking at those comics is is that they're not, um, <clears throat> their primary function isn't to tell a great or life-enriching story. Their primary function is to maintain a franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, to serve the, the needs of a, a brand. And um, and so there's this constant pressure to... Because because the reality is that the, the sales on those comics have been falling for a very long time. <laughs> and, uh, and they now sell at levels which would have had them cancelled immediately 30 years ago. They sell at levels that black and white indie comics were selling at for certain points in the late 80s, early 90s. Exactly, yeah. In fact, some of them are selling at levels that would have had those cancelled in the <laughs> 1990s, <laughs> during the boom anyway. Yeah. But, but the, um, because the sales are falling, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure on them all the time to, to do something, anything that will create an event, uh, a kind of... Um, some excitement around it, and so they construct these these massive crossovers that usually seem to involve really, really unpleasant things happening to, to the world and the people in it. Um, 
and I, I feel like it's a rut that they've kind of got themselves into and and they they don't know what else to do. And um, some of the writers, thankfully, have be, have done different things mm-hmm. that often have been quite successful. But but I feel as though, on the whole, the senior editorial staff, at least at DC, um, their ideas for renewing their their market share at any given time seem to have 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 withered down to just this one idea, which is you know make something really spectacularly horrible happen. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, we, yeah, we had, this, we had this week-long meeting in New York with a whole bunch of the Bat writers and editors working on various Gotham City books uh, in which we were planning a big crossover event. And the, the central, the, the most important outcome of the event was this character called Spoiler was to be, um, to be killed. And there was this strange moment when I suddenly felt like, you know, I was here. I was sitting in a in an earless office in the middle of New York, planning a hit on a teenage girl. <laughs> so it was, yeah, very strange feeling. But uh, there were other moments too that made me feel very uncomfortable about what we were doing. Um, and the one that stands out for me is when a box of comps arrived, so my copies of an issue of Batgirl that I had written. And on the back cover was a recruiting advertisement for the U.S. Army. Mm. And this was around the time that the U.S. Army was dropping white phosphorus on civilians in Fallujah. Um, So it was a very uncomfortable feeling, and it was was hard not to feel like it was all part of the same... uh, the same the construction of of a narrative about a world full of good guys and bad guys and and in which um the only way to protect the innocent people of Gotham City from the evil predators was to be even more effective at violence than they were um and at the time that felt like a really uncomfortable uh basis on which to build an imaginary world to me. Mm-hmm. How, um, how do you feel coming out of um, that point? Like, what were some of the things for yourself that worked to kind of remove yourself and kind of clear your mind? Because you were having a lot of difficulty creating for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it, it got mixed. Well, there were other things going on, too. I mean, I also... To be completely frank, I was probably suffering from second album syndrome too, because my first book, Hicksville, had been um, far more successful, at least critically successful, mm-hmm. than I ever imagined it could be. Um, you know, hardly a month would go by when I wouldn't hear from an academic somewhere in the world introducing it to their their postgraduate paper on post-colonial literature or something, you know, and, I, and uh, it, was, it was getting written up in people's best comics of all time lists, and, and so uh, that was, it was kind of intimidating um, to then start work on an, another book. <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I see if I can do something um, kind of as good, uh, and on top of that, I, I was being published by Drawn and Quarterly by that stage, who were, um, you know, for a little little guy from New Zealand, um, I, it was amazing to be published by such a great publisher. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, I just you know I think there was an element too of I I wrote myself into a hole with my own work by trying so hard to produce <laughs> something um, that was simultaneously uh, pushing the boundaries of the form and um, and also telling a really sincere, authentic, personal story, um, while at the same time feeling really messed up about you know how stories work and um, and are they sometimes actually a destructive force in the world and that kind of thing. Is that the role that um, your other book, the one that's only in New Zealand right now, um, or maybe it's otherwhere? I can't remember, but Incomplete Works, um, mm. is that kind of the role that that one plays for you? Is that kind of working through what direction you're going in personally? Um, Incomplete Works was, was the first book I was ever asked to do specifically for a New Zealand publisher, um, okay. which was a really nice experience for me because all my other, like Hicksville was out overseas it was out in five different languages before it ever got a New Zealand edition. And during that time, it was actually very hard to get back home in New Zealand. Um, so I would constantly be fielding emails from people saying, how can I get your book? You know, or from bookstores asking how they could order it. And I wasn't easy. <laughs> so, but, but, but being asked to do a book for a New Zealand publisher allowed me to really, um, somehow it allowed me to, put it together uh, in a very intimate way. And the, the concept was just to do a collection of short comics by me. Mm-hmm. So I was, it was because um, it was going to be a while before Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen was ready. Uh, and my publisher here was keen to have something come out in the meantime, just to remind people that I exist. <laughs> Um, so I, I, we, we thought well, we'll put this together because how long could that possibly take, you know, to just throw together a few old stories. Um, but in the process of putting it together, I found I was constructing a kind of accidental autobiography. Um, even though very few of the stories are actually autobiographical, but each story had come out of a particular place in my life. I mean, the oldest story is nearly 30 years old. Oh, wow. Um, and while I was drawing that story, I first met the woman that later became my wife. Um, and so every story was kind of tangled up with all sorts of memories about a particular place and time in my life and particular people who were involved in it. And they were all very personal. It reminded me of how... Um, how very, very personal most of my comics have been. Um, you know, they don't have to be, they, they can be fictional and still be incredibly, intensely, almost uncomfortably personal. Uh, and that's what it felt like. So by putting them together, um, yeah, it was like doing a little kind of, uh, a, a little, this is your life, you know, <laughs> as a cartoonist. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a good process actually a really a really healthy process to do that. How did that influence um, the continuation of Sam's Abel? Um, I, 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 it's hard to say. I, I, I don't even know that it did. I think by the time I had finished putting that together, I was 
um, I was really working all out on Sam Zabel. It, the thing about that book, about Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen, is that I started it like 10 years ago. Um, and it probably took me a few years to do the first couple of chapters. But I, I drew most of, I drew slightly more than half the book in the last uh, 18 months of, of doing it. Um, so when I was putting incomplete works together, it was during that period where I was just furiously working on the magic pen. And um, I had a very clear sense of where I was going with it by then. Um, yeah, I, I should say the Incomplete Works has been published in French, actually. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I have more books out in French now than I do in North America. Um, <laughs> but I, I, we're hoping, I'm hoping there'll be a, a, an American edition of uh, Incomplete Works soon as well. Um, or if people are really excited to read it, they could just order it from the New Zealand publisher. You can order it online from the New Zealand publisher, and actually the postage is not that bad. Um, <laughs> Americans get a fright when they look at the postage, but if you live in New Zealand, you're so used to that. Yeah. You order a book from Amazon, and it always costs more to have the book shipped than it does to buy the book. I was reading someone, I think in Australia, was saying about someone wanted to buy a copy of their book, and they just sent them a link to Book Depository. Yeah, yeah. Well, Book Depository is great because there's no international shipping. I mean, it's still part of the evil Amazon empire, but what can you do? It's like that little secret cousin hidden thing i don't know yeah yeah no it's really for people in new zealand book depository is, <laughs> is it's it's like when you find out about book depository suddenly you start spending all your money on books it's terrible <laughs> as a canadian it's helpful too shipping here is uh, a lot more than people expect for being so close to america oh really i'm 45 minutes from the border and uh it, that doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, uh, one of the big things about your work, about, about both the, uh, the books we can get in North America, is the role that um, your home, New, Ze New Zealand, plays. And uh, in both Hicksville and Sam Zabel, they, I feel like they play like a different role, um, with it being more geographical in Hicksville, uh, Zabel feels more... Um, the comics cultural is an important thing to you in that? Yeah, I, I guess that's right. Um, Hicksville was partly an attempt to sort out my relationship with New Zealand uh, and with New Zealand's place in the world. Um, sometimes I think of it as uh, there's, there's kind of two stories in Hicksville for me. One of them is about the history of comics and their place in the world of art and literature. But the other story is about the history of New Zealand mm -hmm. and its place in the, um, in the wider world. And uh, people in different places read it very differently. Like in New Zealand, people read it as a book about colonialism and about the way in which um, the landscape and history of New Zealand was kind of re reconstructed in the process of colonization. Um, throughout it, there's, there's a metaphor of mapping going on, um, of cartography. There's uh, Captain Cook features, who was um, the first British explorer to circumnavigate New Zealand and to really put it on the world map. 
Um, but, uh, but in the process, he kind of, he drew over the top of, metaphorically, um, the existing map of New Zealand that the indigenous people, the Māori, had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so all of that is kind of how New Zealanders read it. Um, and there's the image of New Zealand being adrift, uh, these drifting islands in the world, so no one quite knows where we are anymore. Uh, but but outside New Zealand, everyone just reads it as a book about comics. <laughs> so, um, and all that New Zealand stuff's kind of be like, oh, that's that's interesting, kind of exotic. Um, <laughs> with with Sam's Able and the Magic Pen, I guess. Um, and actually, it's when I was doing Hicksville, you know, when I started working on that book, I had only just come back from England. In fact, the first parts of that book were drawn in England, and. Um, I had been living there for some years, so so partly I was also trying to work out, you know, where am I? You know, am I in New Zealand? I am I, am I, European now? And and trying to make sense of all that. But but working on Sam's Abel and the Magic Pen, you know, I've been living here ever since, so decades. It's been decades since I came back from England. I've, I'm very very settled here now, and um, my kids have grown up here, and. Uh, we built a house here, and, you know, so I feel very deeply immersed in New Zealand. Um, and in a way, New Zealand is simply the place where the magic pen starts out. So Sam lives in New Zealand, he goes to a conference in Christchurch. Um, but, uh, but I think two things happened while I was working on it. One of them was there was a terrible earthquake in Christchurch, which is the city where part of the book is set. Mm-hmm. And um, it killed uh, over 100 people and it demolished uh, the central city in Christchurch. And I have a lot of friends there. And, uh, and for New Zealand, it was, it was a very big shock. And uh, everyone has a relationship with Christchurch as a place and as a community. And so it was kind of strange to be drawing this comic that was partly set there. And I think the way I responded, I responded to it was almost without realizing, I started to feel a responsibility to, um, to, really, uh, to really create a, a little tribute to some of the places in Christchurch that I loved, which were gone, you know, which had been completely destroyed. Um, so I started, I made sure that I included specific comic shops in Christchurch. I mean, there's one specific comic <laughs> shop in Christchurch, which is Comics Compulsion. It's a great shop, but, but they, they lost their building in the quake and have had to move to a new place. So I, incl- I, you know, I, carefully, I found myself on um, Google Earth finding pre-quake images, street view images of, of the shop and carefully making them as accurate as I could in the drawings and, and other kind of locations in the city as well. Uh, I spent a while on in, in talking to the Christchurch libraries trying to work out which operating system they had on their computers before the earthquake happened. <laughs> and it took me ages to find pictures of the um, airport at the time the quake happened because uh, actually they were in the middle of rebuilding it. Um, a whole new, you know, revamped airport when the quake happened. So all the all the photographs were of after the 
They don't want to show off the old one. They want to show off the exactly. New one. Yeah. So, so there was basically what that meant is that I really immersed myself in the location as a um, a thing in itself, um, with a lot of love for for the city. Um, but the other thing that happened is I, you know, I I just fell in love with this made up comic that I have in the story, um, which is called The King of Mars by a cartoonist called um, Evan Rice. And Evan Rice is, is loosely based on, or at least sort of inspired by, a real-life New Zealand cartoonist called Eric Resitar, who, um, who died while I was working on the comic. So he was, when he was like 13 years old during World War II, he was a schoolboy in Auckland, and uh, he was a huge fan of Buck Rogers and... American science fiction comics and um, he started drawing his own comics and he managed to talk the government at the time paper was rationed because the war was on and it was very difficult to get anything imported into New Zealand so paper was rationed and you had to apply to the government to get access to paper to, to print something and it was usually restricted for really essential things like newspapers and official documents and so on so this 13-year-old boy wrote to the Minister of, uh, Minister of the Interior and, and said, um, I want some paper to print some comic books. And I don't know how he pulled it off, but he persuaded the minister that this was really important for morale. Um, and so they, they gave him paper, and he used it to print these, um, what at the time were, were referred to as blood and thunder comics, um, you know, of, of dubious morality. Uh, and he printed up these these great science fiction comics, um, Crash O'Kane, and uh, so on. And he he um, sold. He went down to the docks. At the at the time, there were a lot of American soldiers in town because because um, they were uh, sent to New Zealand. New Zealand became one of the main bases for America during the Pacific War, mm -hmm. and uh, New Zealand was delighted because people here were terrified of a Japanese invasion and knew that they couldn't possibly fight anyone off with our, you know, our, our sort of five, five rifles and, and uh, a, a probably a, an old Bentley made out to look like a tank. But, um, but when thousands of Americans turned up, we thought we're, we're safe at last. Uh, so, so he took a whole lot of these comics down to the docks and he sold them to American soldiers and he did really well. He was very successful. Um, so that's Eric. And, he kept doing comics until the 60s, but he never really had any, um, he, you know, he, he never took off in terms of his career, apart from those few years when he was doing quite well selling them to American soldiers. Um, but he was a real character, really um, fascinating guy. And his comics were really kind of homemade, and, um, and they were very New Zealand. He did one about an all-black New Zealand rugby player going to Mars and um, playing all, playing rugby against the Martians. Just crazy, crazy shit like this. <laughs> um, and so, so I started out just, just casually thinking I'd do this kind of little tribute to him by making the comic a bit like his. But once I got into it, I, it really took over. I was, I was really, um, I became really interested in exploring um, the the kind of wish fulfillment fantasies of a, uh, a a young science fiction fan at the bottom of the world in New Zealand, um, 
back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, because one of the themes of, of Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen is um, it, it's our relationship with fantasies and particularly with wish fulfillment fantasies and escapist fantasies. And uh, when I was writing for DC, I think part of what I found difficult was it felt like I was stuck in someone else's wish fulfillment fantasy. It wasn't mine, you know. It, like, for someone else, those Batgirl stories in Gotham, that was, like, absolutely their favorite daydream. But for me, it was, like, a kind of really creepy nightmare. Um, and there I was spending all of my imaginary life in this world that I found disturbing. Um, and that wasn't mine. You know, it didn't come from my desires and daydreams but it also didn't come from my fears or nightmares it was it all came from someone else and so it was that was a strange feeling and so i wanted to put sam into the same situation of being thrust into someone else's wish fulfillment fantasy uh and by making it a fantasy that that is like 50 or 60 years old um it allowed me to really explore what happens when you feel very uncomfortable about the assumptions underlying it. Um, kind of lost in in my thought with what you're saying. It was a very rambling answer too. <laughs> I didn't really kind of answer your initial question. Yeah. Um, on a, on a side note, um, Canada we had a similar problem with the paper shortage and uh, importing. And so we weren't able to uh, import American comics. So we did our own called the Canadian Whites, um, which is a ter terrible name when you say it out loud. Um, <laughs> and so we have comics like Nilvana of the North, which was the first female superhero that was an Inuit goddess. Um, Johnny Canuck. There's a whole bunch of other ones. Um, a character called Iron Man. Um, yeah, it's a, it's interesting how we kind of come up with our own um, stuff. And also to. that that it meant that, that that period was a time when a lot of um, a lot of colonial countries kind of created their own comics industries mm -hmm. uh, because they couldn't they couldn't import them, and uh, and so New Zealand did have a, a thriving comics industry for the course of the war. Um, and uh, that was then completely forgotten because after the war, of course, gradually imports came back and um, and American comics took over and the uh, the local industry just completely collapsed. You can't really compete with Jack Kirby. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or actually, I mean, in the early, in the 50s, it was... Um, Actually, in the 50s, it was still pretty hard to get a lot of American comics here. Uh, and um, and there was, of course, we got swept up in the moral panic about American comics as well. Uh, so even when you could get them, your parents probably wouldn't let you, <laughs> wouldn't let you have them in the house. Um, I, I was a little interested in, in earlier, and I don't know how I'm going to ask this question, um, when you're talking about colonialism, 
um, coming through in the comics or kind of an understanding of colonialism. Uh, one of the things, and, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, is um, the kind of um, resolving of colonialism is a lot different in New Zealand than it may be uh, in Canada or Australia, where there's more of a simpatico relationship with the with the Maori. It's complicated, um, and I I don't want to pretend to be an expert in in the history of it, but um, but it's it was certainly very different to Australia, mm-hmm. where in in Australia it played out in a in a particularly ghastly mixture of kind of genocidal racism and um, and uh, and kind of paternalism. Um, I mean, Australian Aborigines didn't really get full legal rights as citizens until a generation ago. Um, but if then, to be honest, it's, <laughs> it's pretty grim in Australia. Yeah. Uh, uh, I remember Simon Hanselman telling me about being te- from Tasmania and yeah. where all the men would hold, at one point, held hands and walked across the whole island to rid it of, of indigenous folks. Yeah, and it's still, it's still an ongoing... Um, pretty ghastly issue. Just the other day, the Australian. I, you know, I, here I am dissing another country. Uh, <laughs> sorry, guys, <laughs> but the Australian Prime Minister just the other day um, was was talking about the need to move Aboriginal populations from these remote settlements they lived in as a lifestyle choice because it just wasn't practical and it cost the government too much to provide services and and he doesn't see why they don't just move somewhere else because it makes much more sense and and um, completely ignoring the fact that where they were living was where they'd been living for you know 20,000 years <laughs> it was it was uh, he just he had no sense at all of, um, of the connection with a place that you might have as a community yeah. anyway um, but <laughs> But you see, New Zealand New Zealanders have long had this um, tradition, which is that we compare ourselves to Australia and pat ourselves on the back for being for not having Australia. Such, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not Australia. It's like, it's you know, like our, Canadians and Americans. Well, exactly, and and in more ways than one, it's our, our, our slightly kind of rude big brother that, that actually always is. It's richer and more powerful, and so on. Um, but you know, we we kind of we tend to to look at we tend to compare the situation here with the colonisation of New Zealand with what happened in Australia, and it makes us feel very worthy and um, and like we did it right. But actually, the history here is also fairly messy and and unpleasant. And um, there was a treaty signed in 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, but is you know the ink was hardly dry before it was being broken on a daily basis by the by the British and um, and most of the land was was stolen or confiscated or bought under dubious circumstances at various times uh, so um, it's it's really been in the last kind of forty. 40 odd years that um, that that 
some of that history is, has been addressed or is being addressed, uh, but it's, it's happening because of Māori activism and um, it's not like we all, you know, all the Pākehā, all the white New Zealanders went, oh, you know, we how terrible to, that our yeah. grandparents did that. We, we should give you a whole lot of money and land back. Um, it, it, it happened under pressure. <laughs> so, um, so it's, it's a, you know, it's a messy, complicated history, and we have plenty of racism here and, uh, and so on. But, but the one thing that I think is very healthy here is that, uh, is that within, our, um, within our political scene, uh, Māori politicians, Māori political movements, parties, uh, and traditional structures as well, iwi, iwi structures, they all play quite an important role in the country's political life. Uh, and you can't ignore that. You know, the thing that I always find really strange when I visit the US is that, is that it feels as though you could live in that country your entire life and never realize that there were still Native Americans living there. Mm-hmm. Um, let alone that, that there were Native American nation you know there were nations there were national uh, structures that still exist and governance structures and so you you, you could have no idea of that um I don't yeah, know, is that unfair i, I don't know <laughs> the uh, the the american governments uh tried very hard to to make them um not seen yeah and it's it, i find that very strange because in new zealand it's uh you that's simply not possible mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean there's not a lot of Pākehā New Zealanders who resent the fact that they have to uh, deal with uh, iwi structures and with the Māori Party and so on, but um, but I think it's a great thing, you know, because it's, it's, God knows where we'd be without it. I, I could talk a lot about the Canadian struggles, but I don't think... People want to hear my rants. Uh, <laughs> we could just we could just talk politics the whole time. Fuck politics. Well, actually, uh, the the next uh, I kind of want to segue on politics and talk about your trip to France, which was um, for for Angoulême, and you hadn't been to Angoulême for quite some time, hmm. I'm presuming. Um, but this year uh, is a little different than any other year because of the uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre. Yeah. And, and I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of resolving the situation even before going there, um, the kind of challenges of, of being an artist and seeing artists killed for their work. Um, yeah, it, it was a very strange time to go to France. Um, I think when, when the massacre happened, um, I mean, my initial reaction was absolute shock uh, and when I saw the with the first news story I saw I remember glancing at it and thinking oh you know some people have been shot in Paris and oh it was Charlie Hebdo and then the name Walensky leapt out from the story and I thought holy shit you know Walensky's been shot and and then I really started reading the story and then spent two days I think just doing nothing but reading stuff online and following what, what was happening and following the reaction and that that started to feel very very strange because um 
you know, there I was on the other side of the world in New Zealand, in an English-speaking country, surrounded by people who, who, who had no idea about French comics or French cartooning, um, much less French politics, you know. And, and I, kind of, I kind of had some sense of who those people were, you know, and of what this meant for the French comics world. And I was seeing a lot of French reactions online. Um, I remember opening up Facebook that afternoon and, and it was just this, it's like half my, half my Facebook friends suddenly had just completely black profile pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, gradually there were a lot of Je suis Charlie ones appearing as well, but, but actually from France, the, the dominant thing was just black profile pictures. Um, but, but, uh, but the other half, the, the English-speaking world, you know, there was a little scattering of Je suis Charlie signs, but, um, but instead the English-speaking cartooning world seemed to very quickly descend into a, 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 a kind of angst-ridden soul-searching about, uh, about whether Charlie Hebdo were, were evil racists and, and kind of deserved it, you know. And... Um, I found that really difficult and really uh, strange mm-hmm. because partly because I was seeing the French reaction at the same time and because I knew I'd be going there in a couple of weeks so I was I was really following it quite closely um, yeah I, I, I you know and the strongest the strongest thing after a couple of days the strongest thing that I felt about it was that in the English-speaking comics world, whatever the reaction, for most people, it was a kind of hypothetical, philosophical question. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, oh, how do we feel about uh, about the role of satire and the relationship between free speech and uh, causing offence, and um, and is this okay, and and how does racism fit into the picture? All that stuff, you know. And that's kind of fine, but, but the reaction in France was very visceral, was my impression. And it, and it came from, from the concrete reality that it was these particular people who'd been killed in this particular situation. And people in France, they, everybody... Everybody knows Charlie Hebdo in France as a magazine, whether they loved it or hated it. Mm-hmm. But everyone knows it. You know, it's such a key part of the, the sort of political and cultural landscape. And it's been, to, been there for, for many, many decades. Um, but also everybody knew a lot of those cartoonists, and particularly that everybody knew Walensky and, and um, Kabu. You know, that they... They were very big figures in France. They did a lot of comic books. They did uh, um, political cartooning, not just for Charlie Hebdo, but for all sorts of venues. Um, they'd often been involved in animation, all sorts of things. Um, Kabu was, uh, was on television a lot. Mm-hmm. He, he, he did a regular slot drawing cartoons on kids' shows um, to inspire kids to draw. And so people had grown up with these cartoonists. They weren't like some kind of, you know, 
weird, scary, possibly racist uh, foreign cartoonists that they didn't understand. It wasn't like they a redneck re- Johnny Ryan or something. No, no, <laughs> no, no. They were they were real, <clears throat> real people, and there were presences in in everyone's lives. Um, and so I think, I think I found that disconnect between the two kinds of reaction. Um, I found that quite upsetting. Um, so it was almost it was almost kind of for me personally it was almost uh, kind of uh, really healing to actually go to France and spend three weeks absolutely immersed in the world of French comics. Um, I mean, a day after arriving, I was at Angoulême, which is like the the comics festival in <laughs> France. Um, and there was an extraordinary exhibition about the history of Charlie Hebdo that had been thrown together in about two weeks. Uh, but it was a beautiful exhibition. Um, and there were families there with their kids. They, were, they had this enormous blackboard set up in the middle of the show, which was honestly like the size of the wall of a, a gymnasium or something. It was this enormous blackboard. Uh, and they had chalk and invited people to leave their own messages for Charlie Hebdo. And by the time I got to the exhibition, it had been on, you know, it was four days into the festival. Uh, That enormous blackboard was so covered in chalk, there was hardly, you know, you could hardly see the black at all. There's probably some ghastly metaphor here that that uh, people are going to be jumping on as a Shelley Hebdo is racist. But it was almost completely white. The <laughs> black <laughs> had been covered up. By That's why children. we don't transcribe the interviews. That's right. <laughs> and it was beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, children were drawing on it when I was there. And um, I just, I found that very moving. Um, but the other thing that people here don't, the people in, people in the English-speaking world, they don't understand about Shelley Hebdo is, is what a, complicated, diverse magazine it is. Um, the winner of the best album, the best book at, uh, at Angoulême was Riyad Satouf this year, who is an Arab-French cartoonist. And he, he did an extraordinary book called The Arab of the Future, which is what won the prize. Anyway, he's a, he's a fucking Charlie Hebdo cartoonist. You know, he does this, he does this wonderful strip in it called the, the Secret Life of the Young. Um, and, and every week he just records a little conversation or moment that he's overheard or overseen on the streets of Paris, often in, the, in precisely the suburbs that, that the killers came out of, you know, that, that part of Paris. Um, so, so, and, and he, did, he did an extraordinary comic strip, I think, for the, for the post-massacre issue, which sadly I think is, is the last one they've, they've done. I don't think they've done one since. No, I think one, one that, came out recently. Really? In the last couple of weeks? I think so. That's great. Because uh, they really, I mean, uh, the impression I got was that they, they, they drew on every last reserve they had in their spirits to, to do an issue within a week. Mm-hmm. After the shooting, and then and then I guess they just collapsed. You know, it was so such a horrific experience. Um, but he did a beautiful strip for um, for that issue, and it was just this this you know this young uh, 
French guy in the suburbs um, talking on his phone and he's having this conversation with someone and he's saying, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I get that. Yeah, I, I get, I understand, but you don't kill people. You don't, no, you just, no, you don't. No, it's not okay. You know, and he's just, so he's, he's clearly having an argument with a friend about the rights and wrongs of the shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all it is. And it's the most, it's the most moving, beautiful little strip. Um, so I think, I think, you know, I just think people in the, in the English-speaking world, in the comic scene, so many of us, we, we don't, we didn't know what we were talking about. We didn't understand Charlie Hebdo. We didn't know the kind of, the range of stuff they were publishing, the incredibly complex politics of it. Uh, and that was, a, of, that was yeah. kind of a struggle I was having, um, kind of there's the twofolds of struggle was, was the, the dialogue that was happening online, which was very victim-blaming. Um, but also, uh, and this may be my own, my own fussy altruism, was also seeing like mainstream comic artists holding up their pen and brotherhood. Um, but it's mm. like, it's like, what are you challenging? Like, you're you're drawing Hellboy. What are you doing? That's um, your your villain is a Nazi. Um, you know, what are you doing to really challenge? thought and perception and realizing things and I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean there were a lot of extremely um, depressing, sentimental simplistic cartoons drawn in the wake of that shooting by editorial cartoonists around the world, including in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I thought uh, Luz gave an extraordinary, he's one, he was the one who, he's the cartoonist who drew the cover um, of the issue after the He was shootings. the one that didn't go into the meeting that day. Yeah, it was his birthday and he slept, he sort of stayed in bed late and, and, and then went in late and by the time he arrived the, it was all over and there was blood all over the floor. Um, but he gave an, an interview a day or so afterwards, which I thought was, was extraordinary. Just as I thought the cover he drew afterwards was extraordinary, just as a as, as a as an, a piece of cartooning to be able to pull out such a complex, nuanced, multi-layered piece of work mm-hmm. in the midst of that, I thought was just astonishing. Um, but he gave this extraordinary interview. One of the things he stressed, which came up again and again when people were talking about the the philosophy of the Charlie Hebdo cartoonist. He said, we reject symbols. When we're cartooning, we don't draw symbols. If we, if we find ourselves drawing a dove or a, or a, um, a, a symbol with, with you know, the word written on it to tell you what it represents, then we would throw that cartoon away. We didn't want to draw symbols. We wanted to draw people and make it real because mm-hmm. um, we weren't about the kind of abstractions we were about the reality we wanted to talk about the truth not about just some kind of abstract debate and and i and you can see that in their cartoons and it's part of what makes their cartoons so confronting for a lot of people um, is that they're not addressing issues by using these kind of abstract um, abstractions that that remove the immediacy and the visceral impact mm-hmm. um, but, but it also, I think it affects the way you respond to the politics when you're 
drawing like that. Um, and I felt like the discussion in the um, English-speaking world particularly very quickly just descended into these kind of abstract symbolic uh, ideas and gestures. And that showed through in the cartoons that were drawn, but it also showed through in the, the debate, I think, that people weren't talking about the concrete reality of what was happening. They were talking about, um, they, were, they were having a battle of ideas, whether it was free speech, which was often voiced in a very hypocritical way anyway, because the same people supposedly enthusiastically defending free speech at all costs were not prepared to extend the same free speech to their own opponents. There's a Jellabayafra quote, I think, I think it was him, uh, uh, freedom of speech, just watch what you say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of where we're at now in all sorts of horrible ways, whether it's mass surveillance being carried out by our own governments or and the fact that our journalists now have to have they now have to have kind of um, military level encryption on their emails to avoid everything to avoid their sources being discovered by the by the, the NSA um, but also you know I, I have a lot of problems with the way in which um, a lot of online activism has increasingly focused on kind of entirely on the, on the the discourse and on analyzing the the uh, the particular tone of the discourse or the or the um, the particular words or phrases being used or the it, it becomes a kind of politics of the of the symbolic gesture mm -hmm. rather than a politics of structural change um, and I, I you know one of the reasons that I I feel I still feel kind of upset about our failure to really um, respond to the Charlie Hebdo shootings among a lot of the uh, English-speaking comics world is that whether you agreed with all of their politics or not, these were radical left-wing activists who were really concerned about, um, about their politics being real and being concerned with um, with structural issues. The, one, the economist who was killed in the shooting, he did a weekly column in Charlie Hebdo which described horrible, horrible things happening in Greece because of the austerity over there. Um, you know, people who can't get medicine for their children, uh, people who are starving, um, people going through all sorts of horrendous situations because they simply cannot get money, they cannot get healthcare anymore, and so on. Now, what I like about that is that, you know, it's constantly bringing it back to what does this really actually mean? What is really happening here to real people? Not just some kind of abstract debate about etiquette or nuance. What is really happening? And, and I think that's, when I, when I was in Paris and I was able to visit this, the, the, um, the places where, where the, uh, the policeman was shot and the uh, massacre took place. Um, you know, you're very conscious there of, of the reality of what happened. Two guys walked into this office building and, and shot 
a whole lot of artists and cartoonists and writers and activists, you know, left-wing activists and journalists, shot them down and then walked away and then shot a cop in cold blood. I mean, you know, it's just the reality of it's really staring you in the face. Mm-hmm. It was those people. One of the people killed was a guy, he, was a, he didn't work for Charlie Hebdo, but he'd organised an exhibition in the south of France. He ran a comics festival in the south of France. He'd organised an exhibition with artwork, I think, by Walensky, and he was returning it. He was returning it to him. That's why he was in the office that day. You know, I mean, so whenever I, I sort of read these kind of pontificating posts online about, you know, yes, of course, you know, violence is bad, but Charlie Hebdo, such a terrible racist. And I'm like, guys, just take a moment, you know, and actually pay attention to the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, do the same when you hear about a drone attack in Yemen as well, because because often it's it's some 15-year-old kid and and his dad who are out in the farm and the drone suddenly wipes them off the face of the earth and their family are mourning so yeah so i just again and again i i think if if it's taught me nothing else the charlie hebdo massacre and the reaction to it has taught me just just constantly remind yourselves that um that the abstract political debates we're having are often at the heart of them are real people who have real things happen to them. Um, and let's not let the abstraction and the symbolic gestures take over from uh, trying to understand the reality of that. I think that's a great thought to end on. Um, thank you so much, Dylan, um, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I really appreciate your insight and your kind of bringing your experience of, of what you've seen and what you've been thinking about. Yeah, I mean, the other, the other thing I'll just say is that um, the other very rewarding thing about being there was everyone was drawing comics. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that the reaction to it was a lot of people were drawing comics. And, um, and I think all we can do is just keep committing ourselves to to making these these things and doing them as as honestly and as sincerely and passionately as we can. I like that. Um, reminder, folks. Uh, Dylan's new book is Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen from a variety of international publishers in the uh, North American world. You can find it for Fanographics. Does it have a separate UK publisher? Yeah, in the UK it's published by Knockabout. Okay. Um, a very fine press in itself. And for people that listen to Ink Studs that are from other countries that don't speak English, I'm sure there are plenty of options to take a look. Um, and of course, one cannot forget Hicksville. Um, thank you so much, Dylan. I really appreciate this. And, uh, thank you. It's yeah. always fun talking with you.
holy. Everybody's holy. Everywhere is holy. Every day is an eternity. Every man is an angel. The bum is as holy as the seraphim. The madman is holy as you, my soul. Holy. The typewriter is holy. The poem is holy. The voice is holy. The hearers are holy. The ecstasy is holy. Holy. Peter. Holy Allen. Holy Solomon. Holy Lucian. Holy Kerouac. Holy Hunky. Holy Burroughs. Holy Cassidy. Holy the unknown buggered and suffering beggars. Holy the hideous human angels. Holy my mother in the insane asylum. Holy the cops at the grandfathers of Kansas. Holy the groaning saxophone. Holy the holy. Jazz bands, marijuana, hipsters, peace and junk and dreams. Holy the solitudes of skyscrapers and pavements. Holy the cafeterias filled with the millions. Holy the mysterious rivers of tears under the streets. Holy the lone juggernaut. Holy the vast lamb of the middle class. Holy the crazy shepherds of rebellion. Who digs Los Angeles is Los Angeles. Holy New York, holy San Francisco, holy Peoria, Seattle, holy Paris, holy Tangier, holy Moscow, holy Istanbul, holy time and eternity, body, holy eternity and time, holy the clocks in space, holy the fourth dimension, holy the fifth international, holy the angel and Malik, holy the sea, holy the desert, holy the railroad, holy the locomotive, Holy the visions, holy the hallucination, holy the miracles, holy the eyeball, holy the abyss, holy forgiveness, mercy, charity, faith, holy hours, bodies, suffering, magnanimity, holy the supernatural, extra brilliant, intelligent.